This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Hi, friends. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm Andy Miller, and I'm coming to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary in the Jackson, Mississippi area, where I serve as the academic dean and professor of theology here. We would love for you to think about coming to Wesley Biblical Seminary, who happens to be a sponsor of this podcast. We offer several different degree options from bachelors all the way up to doctorates. We have certificate programs, and we have many options available for people who are trying to become trusted leaders in faithful congregations. Look, that's our goal. Ultimately, we want to prepare trusted leaders. Now, that doesn't mean that you're just in pastoral, full-time ministry sort of leadership. We have probably 200 students who are not full-time pastors who are just being equipped to serve as leaders in their church. So our goal is to develop leaders for faithful churches. And we trust that God's using us in that process. And you can find out more about Wesley Biblical Seminary at wbs.edu. Now, on today's podcast, I'm excited that we have the cold case detective, cold case apologist himself, Jay Warner Wallace, coming on the podcast. If you haven't seen his work, he takes the discipline, the deductive discipline of cold case investigations and uses that to defend the claims of the gospel. And he has a new book out called Person of Interest. And this has been published by Zondervan. And I'm excited to say Zondervan has given us five free copies of this book. Our thanks to um, Jim Wallace for making this happen, but also uh, to Zondervan. So here's, you can win a copy and here's how you can do that. One, you can join my email list that gives regular content about what's being produced from my website, podcast, speaking, um, blogs, that kind of thing. Um, and you just go to Andy Miller the third. It's Andy Miller, com, And you just join that email list. I'll have a link for that in the show notes here, or you can share a link on social media that can be either on Twitter or Facebook. You just go to wherever you find this and share it and maybe write a comment or two about this particular podcast with Jay Warner Wallace. Or another thing that you can do is make a comment on YouTube. So if you make a comment on YouTube on the Jay Warner Wallace interview, that would be how you could win a copy of this book. We'd love to have you come along and participate in that. I think you'll find this book to be really helpful. Now, interestingly, he talks about this. I wasn't able to show it, but he has he uses a variety of his own personal artwork to explain some of the things that he does in this book. So Anyways, that's available for you. Want to mention another sponsor, and that is WPO Development. Their CEO, CEO Keith Waters, says, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. Isn't that true? That's kind of like, if you don't really know where you're going, and that's what Keith does. He comes alongside nonprofits, churches, organizations like the Salvation Army, uh, colleges, nonprofit institutions, and helps them develop a plan. Most of the time, that's identified in a mission planning study. Then he lays out a strategic plan, ultimately leading to a place where if you're ready to have a capital campaign, then he and his team will come alongside of you and manage that campaign so that you can achieve the goals that you've set out as an organization. A lot of times, we just need a little bit of help to make that happen. So you can email him at Keith Waters at WPO Development. You can find that at uh, a link to his email address on the show notes here, or you can just Google WPO Development and you can find a link to him and not just to Keith, but to his whole team at WPO Development. Our thanks to them for sponsoring this podcast. Now on to the interview with Jay Warner Wallace. 
Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am honored today to have on the podcast somebody I've admired for a while, and you might know him through his work on cold case Christianity, and that is Jay Warner Wallace. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. We are, uh, I love, some people in my audience might not know about you, and I hope that this is a great way to introduce you to them and your work in apologetics, but you came about this in a different way. I kind of look at you, you know, through the the lens of that great, of course, detective from the Sherlock Holmes, you know, like the great deductive reasoner, and you, you served as a cold case detective for, as a career, maybe still do, so... But that was in part how you came to Christ. So could you tell us a little bit of that story? Yeah, I just didn't know any other way to investigate a claim. So if you were going to tell me something happened in the past, well, I had a skill set in place I could use to to look at the past. And every event, every crime is an event in the past. If you're investigating as a detective, it's just a matter of how far it is. Okay. And in cold cases, it can be three, four decades old where you don't have any access to eyewitnesses. You don't have any access even to the report writers who first interviewed the eyewitnesses. Well, that's kind of like the Gospels, right? You don't have any access to those people who saw Jesus, and you don't even have the access to the people who wrote about what they saw about Jesus. So we just have to kind of make an effort to figure out what is, you know, how do we test the reliability? And I did all that in a book called Cold Case Christianity, and I wrote about it. I was about 35 when I first began that process. You know, I wasn't raised in an environment with Christians, didn't really think that this was really even worth uh, examining, to be honest. I thought it was so silly. Um, This wasn't something that was part of my life growing up. But my wife was interested in going to church once we had kids. And so I went. Uh, neither one of us owned a Bible. We didn't know anything really about anything. So so it started a journey for us. And as I you know, encountered you know, Jesus, you know, the, the first pastor who I listened to was pretty clever. And, okay. and he was somebody who who was used to uh, having uh, non-believers in his congregation. Okay. So he, he kind of saw every Sunday as like a harvest crusade, you know, like a, like a, like a Billy Graham crusade okay. or something, you know, like a, a just a, let's just preach the gospel and, yeah. and see who we reign in. And one of the things he said though, on this particular Sunday was he said that Jesus was smart. Now I, I, I was, it was going to be another nine months, eight, nine months before I would ever consider Jesus to be anything more than just a fictional character on the pages of the Bible. But, but I spent that time really studying who Jesus was. Um, and I had enough time at work because I was working in a position where I had downtime uh, every day. Uh, we were working investigations that required us to be on surveillances that would put us in cars where we're just sitting around waiting for somebody to move. And I used a lot of my, my days off to just work. And every morning before I would go to work to investigate this case. And, and one of the things I was looking at was not just what's in Scripture, because I didn't really trust the Scripture. It's the stuff that that if if imagine if you had no scripture at all because you're not willing to, to open it you're not willing to trust it right, right. Uh, what could you know about Jesus just from the world around us yeah so that if every New Testament had been destroyed I would still be able to figure out who Jesus was just from the world around us and that's really what I'm trying to do in this book person of interest interest so that that challenge and it's funny you use the language uh smart that jesus is smart dallas willard um kind of clued me into that saying that jesus was the smartest person that ever lived and that was a you you don't hear that like holiest kindest you know most compassionate uh self-sacrificial but not smart and so but that kind of just that little challenge is what led you to a place where you and obviously you went through the place and found it to be true so much yeah i think i think you're right if 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 that pastor had said that he was all those other things. I wouldn't yeah. have been interested because it selfishly, 
um, those those notions to me seem very religious. You know, he's the holiest, or yeah, he's sure. that to me. Okay, what, what's your definition of holy, and why do you think you know whatever? But when you say smart, most of us, even non-believers, have some understanding of what that might mean. Right, and all right. of us r- would love to have the wisdom of a smart. Wouldn't we like to have somebody say, "Hey, that guy's the smartest guy." So I'm willing to steal the wisdom of others if it'll help me be the smartest guy in the room. And that's really what got me started. It was just that, you know, what's so smart about Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah. So when you did went through that, it was really looking at the evidence that brought you to faith in Christ? Yeah. Well, I always say it this way. Look, it's, yes. it's something, it's, it's a, it, it, I, how I usually put it is, it seems that to me that God has within his power to uh, have every one of us uh, born with the innate knowledge of the gospel and of Jesus. Okay. But that isn't the way it works, right? And also, he could also flip that switch so that when he decides to call us, we automatically in a dream or in our consciousness have the complete full understanding of the gospel. But that doesn't work that way either. Instead, what it is, is he uses humans to communicate something that that, that once God has kind of softened our heart to that message, that we are able to hear and, and, and think about and consider seriously. Now, for me, as a guy who was everything was about the evidence, that's the kind of that's the job I was doing. That I thought everything had to be grounded in some form of evidence. But luckily for me, Jesus felt the same way. Hmm. Jesus often would say it this way: he he would go into a city and he would first heal and then he would herald. Hmm. Why that order? Because he says in John chapter ten, chapter fourteen, over and over again, he'll say, "If you don't believe the words I'm saying, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked in front of you." Wow! Right? And then when John the Baptist has got an issue and he wonders, "Is Jesus the one?" He sends his disciples to Jesus. He's in prison. Um, his, his disciples come and say, "Jesus, uh, John wants to know, are you the one?" Now, I think at that point, right. you're going to hear the heart of Jesus on how do you deal with doubt. Right. How do you deal with this moment of crisis? Because he could easily have said, hey, you know what? Pray about it. Mm. You you know me well enough that if you just pray about it, God will answer that prayer. Now, he could he could say, hey, he should know better. He's my cousin. He, right. he, he grew up with me. He's yeah. the one who baptized me. He saw that. Instead, what he tells the disciples, you've seen the miracles. Right. Go back and tell John what you just saw. I've healed this. I feel the sick, you know, the, the deaf, the lame, all of that. That's a very evidential approach to say, look, there's this thing we call that's, that's called indirect evidence. The miracles are what we consider indirect evidence. Um, and, and just to say, hey, you know, this is this proves my deity. Right. And this is why he says in Acts chapter one, Luke says that Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples after the resurrection. Right. Giving them many convincing proofs. That word for proof in the Greek is the words often used for evidence. Well, what, what do you need? Really, what evidence do you need? You've already risen from the grave, yet Jesus spends another 40 days giving them convincing evidence. Right. So he can commission them as eyewitnesses. That's called direct evidence. So they can then tell the world what they saw. Even when Thomas puts his you know, right. uh, uh, finger and says, hey, you know, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, but how they how they going to believe? Because you, as an eyewitness, that's right. called direct evidence, are going to testify about this. So even that statement, which seems rather anti-evidential, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Well, how they're going to believe is based on your testimony. So you're right back into the evidence again. Yes. So I think in the end, this view that I took was it was helpful to know as an early investigator of Christianity that Jesus took this approach. Because it seemed to me that's what I would expect, right? Yeah. I knew a lot of religious people who would say things like, hey, you just need to read my spiritual text, right? read this scripture, pray about it, and God will confirm it for you in some mysterious way. 
Yeah. Uh, this is by, for example, what Mormon yeah, missionaries are probably going to ask you to do at their door. Right. It was comforting to see that was never Jesus's approach. Yes. Oh. He gave me enough reason to believe. And that's what I think was got me started. I love it. Love this deductive approach. Um, you know, it, I I work and teach at, at Wesley Biblical Seminary, and our method for hermeneutics is called induct, inductive Bible study. So we take the text that yep. we have and we pull as much out of it as we can. But there's also value to coming from this deductive method as well. And that's right. what's so intriguing to me about your new book, Person of Interest. And what what you're, what I see coming through this, particularly in the later chapters, what you're trying to do is like, if we did not have, and this was a part of your journey too, as you said, like, on a scene, like waiting, reading scripture, figuring out what's going on. Even if we did not have the text of scripture and don't hear me or, or Jim Wallace saying like, we're trying to get rid of the scripture, right, but, right. but even if we didn't have it, that we could construct the reality of the gospel and the historical reality of it. Now, it, that seems to be one of the main contentions of your book. It's like, and you use a lot of, it's interesting to me, you have illustrations throughout the book that are hand-drawn, but you use illustration of a fallout as if there's like a bomb that goes off. And that sets up the way that you describe the effects of Jesus. Could you describe that a little bit for us? Yeah, so if you know, we've had this national case right now, and this missing woman who they found her body, and now they're yeah. looking for the suspect, the boyfriend. Okay, so I've done a bunch of these missing body homicides where you don't ever recover the body. So now you have this guy says that she ran off, or oh, she's missing. Well, I don't know where she is. Yeah, and you don't have, and some, some for whatever reason, for some period of time, people believe that they can't find the body. And then uh, I've got somewhere they don't never find the body. 30 years later, the body's still missing. Right. So now by the time you're working the case, you know, he's moved. The house has been remodeled. No one ever took a picture of the crime scene because it wasn't considered a murder back then. It was considered a missing person. Mm. She ran off. If they can convince us that she ran off, we'll never even take a photograph. So now how do you solve a case in which you have no evidence from the crime scene? You have no crime scene and you have no body. Mm. Well, here's how you do it. You tell the jury, look, if on that day she went missing, quote unquote, she was actually killed by her husband or her boyfriend, yeah. something explosive happened. But every bomb is preceded by a fuse that burns up to the explosion of the bomb. After the bomb detonates, you've got shrapnel and debris all over the blast radius. So you can make a case and determine what happened on the day she went missing by simply investigating the fuse and the fallout. Okay. in the timeline. And so it turns out if you were not willing to look at any evidence in the crime scene of the Gospels, you were not willing to look at the Gospels. You assume they've all been destroyed in some nefarious future dystopian world, or just for the sake of argument, I don't want to get any information from the Gospels. All right, well, you can still make the case for Jesus, his historicity, his right. existence, his deity. You can do all of this just from the fuse and the fallout of history. So that second half of the book is about the fallout. Oh, and and again, I'm not just looking for areas that he deeply impacted. Right. I'm looking for areas he deeply impacted so much so that he left his fingerprints so I can reconstruct the story of Jesus from simply those aspects of culture that we all take for granted. We don't yeah. even realize sometimes how much uh, Jesus was involved and the things that you take for granted as, a, as an atheist, if you have a high value, I was an artist before I was a detective. So you, you're going to look at what arts. Uh, I love music, literature, education was important to me. I have a master's in architecture before I even started the work, the job. And, you know, science is important. Back in when I grew up, I thought science would eventually answer every big question in life. Well, it turns out those five things 
are so deeply indebted to the Christian worldview established by Jesus and enacted by his followers that we wouldn't be where we are today in any of those five areas if not for Jesus and his followers. Who has that kind of impact? It wasn't Buddha and his followers. It wasn't Confucius and his followers. It was Jesus and his followers. Now think about that for a second. Just give you an example of this. If you're just looking at science alone, it turns out that the the, the science uh, scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th century is dominated by Christians in Europe in that period of time known as Christendom. And you think, well, yeah, because everyone in Europe was a Christian. But no, no, that's not true. You have to say, is everyone in the world a Christian then? No. There are larger people groups that are not Christian than there are that are Christian. Yet the science has exploded within the smaller population of Christians hmm. rather than in the larger population, say, for example, in Asia, Persia, it, it, all the other locations that were non-Christian. The sciences did not explode there. They exploded in European Christendom because the Christian worldview sets the table for scientific discovery in a way that other worldviews simply do not. Then I talk about that in the book. And then if you can look and trace this, it turns out that the science fathers, the fathers of the major scientific disciplines, whether there's some that are called fathers, mothers, founders, the, the initiators of the major modern scientific disciplines from the modern uh, discipline of chemistry and astronomy all the way to quantum mechanics, whatever those things are in between, you'll see, I have a list of this in the book. It's the only list I really put, I didn't kick to the end notes or to the case notes. I didn't kick it out there because I wanted people to see just to, just to kind of scan the pages after page after page of scientific disciplines, all of which were founded by a Christ follower. We have dominated the sciences from start to finish. Now we can make a decision today in 2021 if we don't want to dominate the sciences anymore. But that would have to make be a decision. We'd have to deny our historical involvement in the sciences. Here's what's so powerful about it is that every one of these major scientists in history that was a Christ follower, so many of them had personal journals in which they expressed express their devotion to. So you can collect their journals on astronomy, but you can also collect their journals on Jesus. Mm. And you from those personal journals can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus. Interesting. Verses, um, events. I've got an entire list of what can be. You can actually reconstruct as much if not more about jesus from the science fathers than you can from the church fathers in the first four centuries so it turns out that uh, sciences are so powerful that again you have to destroy really the history of science in order to wipe jesus from the map in that one area so it's so interesting like what i would you kind of answer what i was going to ask is so some people might say or a skeptic might say well okay you're you're you can say that all these people are christians but everybody was a christian it was a cultural expectation to be a follower of Jesus in that sense and it was just they if, if they were around today they wouldn't be they wouldn't be Christians but what you're saying if I get correct me if I'm wrong is that if you look at what they did they were doing something in service of the church and they were re they were articulating why they were doing what they were doing because of the impact of Jesus is that what you're saying well, you, you, so you could say okay so everyone in Europe in the 16th and 17th century was was a Christian okay. that's, that's not actually true but right. even if it was just for sake of argument if, it, if every single living breathing human <laughs> In Europe, there are no Jewish believers, there are no agnostics, there are no people who are just benign on the whole issue. Everyone is a devoted Christ follower, which is not true. But if it was, that's still not the whole world. The question is, why is it that science begins in European Christendom? And not in some other worldview that precedes Jesus in a different location in the world. You know, Buddhism begins, begins sure. before Christianity. Hinduism begins before Christianity. 
You know, there are lots of theistic worldviews that pre-existed Christianity, yet that is not, they were not the catalyst for the explosion in the sciences that Christianity was. To, to deny that, it, look, I, I, I get it. You, you can argue that it's for some other reason, right. but to deny that this is a unique feature of Christian history is to not know your history. Wow. So you, you go through several other areas, and you mentioned you had five of them. Like, for instance, you, you brought up music. So, mm -hmm. like, you, you see this same sort of influence, this, this fallout in music. Like, if Jesus had not existed, you wouldn't have this fallout. So, instead, we assume Jesus did exist and that the events of his life were, are historical. So, what are, what are some of the examples from music? Well, so for so if we're trying to reconstruct the story of Jesus, and we have no no Christian scriptures from which to do that, well, if we want to get as close as we can to the events of Jesus's life. Well, then we're going to start. I always say that that, that period of time in Christian history, uh, in the Roman Empire, before Christianity becomes the religion of the empire, because up until the Edict of Milan, right. there was some hostility, lots of hostility toward Christians. The Edict of Milan ends that hostility. The Edict of Thessalonica, so we're looking at the early fourth century for both of these, that ultimately creates, uh, establishes Christianity as the religion of the empire. But up to that point, you have an ebb and, ebb and flow of persecution and intolerance toward Christians, some uh, higher levels than others, depending on the emperor, okay? okay. But it seems to me that I, I could argue, well, yeah, power corrupts. So once power is involved with Christianity of the Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church is in place, how do we know that the story hasn't been corrupted in some way? Because power corrupts. Well, let's take a look only then at the story and the information that's available to us in the first three centuries before any of that occurs. So I'm looking at the Antonicene Church Fathers, for example, in that period of time before it becomes the religion of the empire. And if all you did was look at the music, the hymns that were sung in the first 300, 400 years, right in that range, you can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus just from hymns that are being sung by the church. Wow. So there's a lot more in terms of document evidence you're going to have to destroy because now there's an entire body of music. And not only that, the Christian worldview has always been a singing worldview. Mm. Let's fast forward to the 21st century. Here we are in America in the 21st century. Now let's ask this question. What one place in culture, what one aspect of culture, what one group within culture gets up on a stage in front of an audience every weekend and sings? Okay, That's, that's Christianity, okay? And that singing congregation is where I mean, you have no idea how many people in pop culture started off singing worship songs yeah, in sure. a church somewhere, right? And then they end up singing because we have a culture of developing singers and often today, even stage performers, okay, who are singing in front of a group and musicians. And this has always been the case. Remember, David's writing songs in the part of the Jewish tradition. We think that Jesus is probably singing one of the Psalms. Sure. At, well, he was at, at the Lord's Supper, which Psalm it is, is the question. But that, and then Paul says, you know, you should be singing spiritual songs and hymns. Yeah. And this is a tradition that begins very early. And so there becomes a certain technological uh, need to advance the cause of music as congregations grow, as you're reach is getting larger. And so you'll see, for example, that the first people who designed musical notation, right? Yeah, that's a Christ follower. The wow. people who start to move to minor and major scales, those are Christ followers. The people who move from single uh, uh, singing of, of, of acapella to instrumentation, those are Christ followers. People who start to work on harmonization of voices and of melodies, those are Christ followers. So it turns out that all of the little technical adaptations over history that we now see in modern music 
have their roots in the work of people who are in service of the church often or in service of Christian groups of one nature or another. And so this is what's so interesting. We are indebted to Jesus and his followers for where we are. As a matter of fact, so indebted that if you look, and he still inspires so many singers and songwriters in pop music. So if you look at all the forms of contemporary pop music, and there's lists out there of the top 100 artists in the last 100 years, okay. uh, and they're all different hip hop and, and R&B and country and pop, and you just they're all different genres, okay? So I went out there and got all these lists, and I made a master list. There's a lot of overlap, but it's about 150 artists total that you okay. see that are consistently mentioned. And I simply searched their catalogs. I found that all all but two had a song in which they sang about Jesus. And it wasn't always like, you know, uh, um, flattering. I mean, you know, Frank Zappa's got a song, you know, Jesus thinks you're a jerk. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. somewhere pretty funny. But the point is, uh, people are either inspired or infuriated or motivated. Jesus is one of those. By the way, could you say this about any other historical figure? Right. This is the most important music? person in history. Right. You, nobody else has this kind of stature with musicians. Nobody else is so inspiring to, to, toward musicians. And when you see it visually, when you see the list and you look at the songs that we're, we're talking about here, it is staggering. And, and it, I think it's helpful for us to see lists like that. That's why I try to make so many illustrations. You know, I, I basically take the same approach I take in front of a jury. I know that sometimes to, to, to make a decision about a case, the jury needs to see it. They need to see, yeah, I see what you mean. And I, I get it. You know, that was an overwhelming case. I can see the cumulative nature of the case. So you'll see that my illustrations are just straight out of the kind of presentations I would make in front of a jury. As a matter of fact, I, I, just this week, we uh, opened up an offer on our website at uh, personofinterestbook.com for anyone who buys and reviews the book. We're going to send them a 525 slide uh, PowerPoint. That wow. just basically so that all those illustrations are available so you can see how to make that case visually for others. So I've seen in, in the book, it seems like almost every page. Now, I only have electronic copy, but it seems like every page has some sort of graphic component to it. Um, yeah, that's, that, was, that was my hope. And I'll tell you something. The reason you why did I did this. They're yes, yours? I, wow. Yeah, they're my drawings. So the reason why I did that is I learned something from doing kids books. You know, kids' books, the ratio of illustrations to pictures is about one to one. So okay. if you've got, you don't want to have, a, I always say, I don't want a single page to be turned in a kid's book without an illustration of some sort, some sort, some graphic material. And I had the same goal with this book, right? Now I have some pages where there are lists, so I, I don't have an illustration there. But wait, we have, we tried to make sure that, you know, 400 illustrations, only 250 pages. So we're, we're looking at trying to make sure that there's an illustration on almost every, well, in some places it's two to three on one, one page because we've got some pages with a list. So that's a different kind of a graphic approach. But sure. to me, the graphic design of interiors on the books is just as important as the content. So I first start with the content and then I move toward, I mean, we spent three months illustrating this book. Wow. So, uh Friends, I have Jay Warner Wallace on the podcast with me here in his new book, Person of Interest. And we're really excited that Zondervan, the publisher, is making five of these books available for my listeners. So here's what you can do. If you take a minute and you share a link to this on your social media, that like so you go and find this on YouTube or Apple Podcasts, you can share a link, you'll be entered into a prize to win one of these, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube channel as well. So there's two ways you can win. You can share a link and we'll just make sure we know it and then we'll have a drawing to see who can win this. So thanks so much to Zondervan for making that happen and uh, for, for Jim, for you helping kind of 
make that move along too so we can get the word sure. out about this. And you can yeah, see these, these books. Um, it's such an encouraging thing to think about the impact of Jesus as a whole and the way you're describing this. Now, you were just talking about the way, the illustrative way you've gone about this. And part of our audience are ministers. And we just had a podcast not long ago where we had two episodes talking to people about the use of illustrations mm, and how right. important it is. And you were, you were just saying that too. You want every page to have that. I'm just curious, what type of, this is off the subject of your book. We'll get back to the book. What type of advice do you have for preachers? Like when, I mean, you, you travel around a lot. A lot of times you're probably the speaker, but do you have, you have some, something that you'd say to preachers about the use of illustrations or what is it that you'd like to say to us preachers? Oh, well, okay. For, if you know my work, you just know, I, I, I'm entirely visual and okay. I've done trials in front of juries where we didn't use graphics uh, in any way. And I just don't think they're as effective. And I, and I think that it can, I, there's just, I teach a course on this at, at Biola okay. and I call this segment of the course death by PowerPoint because you can ruin a presentation okay. by using PowerPoint. So I'm, I'm, I will use PowerPoint as a frame, but I'm trying to develop what's basically flip animation and using visual arts in a way that's very non PowerPoint like. Okay. Okay. So I'm a big believer in using, visual presentations. As a matter of fact, what I typically tell people is that if, if I come and speak at your church, it'll be an entirely visual presentation. And I don't want to see my face on any of it because you need to see what we're doing visually. You won't make okay. any sense. An audio recording of this presentation will make no sense at all because a lot of what I'm going to be saying, I'm going to say with images. I'm not going to say it with words. I don't use a script. I just, I know what's, I'm just walking people through a step-by-step -step video experience, right? Imagine if you could stop and start the video experience. I'm going to narrate that for you, but you're going to be watching this on the screen and it's going to start the minute I open my mouth and it'll go all the way until I end. As a matter of fact, I asked Zonervan, would you give me two years to build the stage presentations for this book? I'm going to have to build, I think like 10, right? Three for the fuse, one for the full of time, which explains why Jesus came when he did. And then, you know, uh, you know, five or six for the end of the book. And so they allowed me two years to do it. And then when I got done, I had these huge color, you know, gigabytes of, of presentations. And I knew I couldn't put those in the book. There's just no way we can afford to do that. So I knew I needed to, re to recast those as line drawings. So what we have in the book are really my visual presentations reduced to line drawings so that you can print them in a book, right? Okay. Without having to print photographs of the color work. So, so I, I'm so committed to this process that I, I really write this way. I've always discovered that if you can do this in front of an audience, look, I, I will assemble an approach. And it might take me a week to do what's going to be a 30-second sequence. Wow. And I spend 40 hours building it. And then I do it in front of an audience and I realize, you know, it doesn't work. Wow. Yeah. I thought it would have worked. In my mind, I thought this is going to be very powerful. And then when I get up there, I'm like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but okay. I end up cutting it. Well, those things don't make it into a book. But I need time to do this in front of an audience visually so I can see what should be included. And so you'll, you'll see in the book typically is, you know, all the hopefully you have enough time to take the failure stuff out. Oh, interesting. I, I, like, so just the way to your, your desire is truly to connect. 
to people. Like whatever it's going to take to make that impression using all the skills and things. Now, this is connected to, to me, the, the next subject that I wanted to cover. I'm sorry to not spend as much time on the fuse and Jesus is no coming. Problem. But I'd like, I mean, maybe we'll have time to get back there. But I was really intrigued by this. Like when you, you talk about art and here you are talking about your own mm -hmm. artistic approach, but you're thinking through art history, what it is like you can see again, that fallout after the fuse, after the coming of Jesus, you can see the fallout of, of Jesus's influence in the, the world of art. Yeah, it's 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 probably even more incredible than it is in the music. So, so if you look, you can reconstruct. And I did this in the book. I, I tried to show, and the, the there's a case note file. That's a PDF file that's available on our website. That case note file. Uh, I think only about 50 pages of case notes are in the end of the book. The other 279 pages of case notes are a PDF file that's downloadable from our website because I knew that I was going to include, for example, um, you can reconstruct the entire gospel of Mark episode by episode just from art done by Christians, right? In the first, uh, before the Middle Ages. So what you have is uh, the ability to, re you, have to, you have to destroy every one of those buildings and surfaces in order to get rid of the Jesus story because it's not just on the pages of scripture. And I only used Mark because I knew it would be the least amount of work. It's the shortest gospel. But you can do this for every gospel. Okay. okay. So yeah. I have a list of all of the pieces of art that reconstruct in sequence from the opening lines of Mark to the ending lines of Mark, every sequence, every episode in Mark. So you can see that this is how much has been covered by the, this cannot be said of any other uh, sacred text, mm. but it can be said. Why is it that it's so inspiring? As a matter of fact, um, if you look at the history of artists, and I don't care which genre of art history you're looking at from antiquity all the way through to modern pop art to impressionism along the way, whatever your form of art, and I've got the entire list in the book, if you just Google this for the top three artists in each genre okay. in each historical period, you'll get three artists. Yeah. You can do five if you want, but get the three. You will find that every single one of the top three artists in every historical period of art history has painted, etched, sketched, or drawn Jesus of Nazareth as an inspiration, including Andy Warhol or you, anyone you can think of who's in that top section of these historic periods. And it's not just a Western phenomenon because I've got an A to Z catalog in the book that shows you how globally Jesus has influenced the arts. And what's interesting about Jesus is that he's an adaptable savior in the sense that because God has created all of us in the image, his image, we are all equally uh, image bearers. And regardless of what we might look like or what culture we might be in or what race or ethnicity we are, we are all equal image bearers. And so what's interesting about that is that if you move around the world right. and look at like paintings or sculptures of the Buddha, they will look pretty much interesting. the same. Yeah. But if you look at paintings and sculptures and drawings of Jesus, he looks like the ethnicity of whatever area he's in, right. dressed very differently, may have facial hair, may not have facial hair. I mean, he adapts because we see him as the savior, the second Adam, and we all are descendant from the first Adam. Hmm. And so we simply see him in our form because we are in the image of God as like much as anybody other race is in the image of God. And he adapts. And so you'll see that artists then are inspired within their cultural context to depict Jesus within their cultural context. Yeah. And that's why you see so much creativity. Uh, it's not as though I have to change and learn the customs of, you know, 5th century BC uh, Persia in order to adopt 
adopt uh-huh. this view, this theistic view. No, instead, Jesus comes into the what, 19th century, comes into the 10th century, wherever you are in the world, and you start to envision him in the context of your setting. Yes. And that inspires art in a way that's unparalleled. Wow. It shows how the, the gospel is translatable. Like this is like the right. same thing is that in other religions, you don't have the same thing where it adapts to cultures. What a beautiful way to think about that and how that helps us. Again, the, what, what you're doing by highlighting the influence of Jesus in art or music is, and, and, and you're not saying Andy Warhol was a Christian, right? No. But, but Andy Warhol had to deal with this historical with figure. That's right. The same way that the, the musicians who are non-Christians may just use Jesus profanely in their music. Right. But they don't ignore Jesus. They see the power in the profane use of Jesus, just as somebody who's inspired by Jesus sees the power of his inspiration. Yeah. That to me is fascinating because it's unique to historical figures. Now, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm going with this. We're, we're saying if you're arguing that a another mere human in the history of bazillions of humans had this kind of inspirational impact on history, the question would be why? Mm. Why? Yes, yes, yes. Now, so if he's just another ancient sage from the first century, and I list all of the other important people from the first century in the book in the last chapter, I've given you a list. If you're wondering what, who is it that changes Emperors and that type of thing. Right, there's emperors, there's other poets, and there's other sages in that list as well. None of whom you probably recognize because they didn't have the impact combined that Jesus had. Mm -hmm. And I looked at all the other world leaders throughout the history of world leaders. I've got the top, I think, 20 or 30 on that list. They haven't had this impact on history. The other deities and religious leaders haven't had this impact. Even the other people who claim to be the Jewish Messiah, Messiah, and I include that list as well. How is it that this guy has this kind of impact? And if you really think about who he is and who he wasn't, Mm. He never did anything significant in the world's views of significant. He never uh, led a nation or ruled a nation or led an army or, right. or wrote a book or formed a company or had a family of his own and a legacy of children. Never had an education he could boast about. Never wrote a concert. Uh, this is not somebody who has all oh, doesn't have a Twitter platform, doesn't have <laughs> social media, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, never even had a home he could say it was his. He only born in some small insignificant town and raised in another small insignificant town and never traveled more than about 200 miles anywhere and and he only had three years in which he had a public ministry this guy who was pursued by people who had power and rejected by people who were religious and denied and betrayed by the people who said they loved him and then falsely accused and mocked and brutally beaten and executed unfairly and then had to borrow a grave to be buried this is the guy Wow. Who impacts every aspect of human history so deeply that they're forever changed. And you can reconstruct his story from the fingerprints he left. How do you explain that Mm. if he's just another human? That's why I think, you know, of course, if he's God entering into his own creation, well, that would expect no less. Right. And and this is why I think that this is a good evidence for the deity of Christ. Wow. Ah, I love how you just put all that together. This is amazing. Again, I'm with Jay Warner Wallace. I want to encourage people to check out his book, Person of Interest, where he goes through all of this in detail. And we're offering our listeners free copies of this if you enter in our contest. So just share a social media link or if you go onto YouTube, make a comment. That will be something that we can do to enter you into the contest to win one of these books. And I, I had on the podcast your friend, Frank Turek. 
Um, yes. And I actually just spoke with him the day. It'll come out at a different time. But he does something similar to what you're doing here. So often what he'll he'll do if somebody complains about the about evil, exist the existence of evil in the world, he turns it around pretty quickly and says, Well, what do you mean by evil? Right. Right. right it, and right. here's what you're you're kind of saying, like, okay, you don't you don't affirm these things of the historical record about Jesus or his divinity, but you do seem to think he was an influential person. And why would you sing about him? Why would you write about him? So you kind right. of turn the question around. Like, it seems like he's had a pretty big influence. So you and Frank have a lot in common. Well, yeah, and we're very good friends. And I'll tell you, this is a good point you're making because you can say, well, okay, so why are you singing about it? I think the first comeback is going to be, well, because I, I was raised in the West. But the question isn't, well, yeah, I get it. You were raised in in, the, in a world that was deeply influenced by Jesus. So now in that deeply influenced world, you end up singing about him. The question is, though, why is the world deeply influenced by Jesus? Yes. The question is, why is it this is the environment you find yourself in? Right. That's the question we have to ask, right? So it's a more foundational question, right? That's that kind of putting the carpet before the horse. You want to, and that's what, the, by looking at the fallout, you're going back to that original event. And that's what's so unique. It's like we, we believe we have a historical faith that we can describe all sorts of things we want to about theology and how we come to articulate our faith but at some point like what makes christianity distinct it's it's his we, we, all these things have historical reference and so we point back to those moments another thing you you highlight too is architecture and uh, the development of architecture could you you talk about that a little bit i know we, we only have so much longer here but i want to i want to make sure to get a little bit of that in i found that so interesting yeah and maybe this is just me and my sweet spot because i was an architect before i became a police officer but for a lot of this is that you you find yourself there that the evolution of, of churches for example is a direct product of trying to to elevate two aspects of the christian story right when they first start meeting there in these Palest, uh, palestinian uh, jerusalem area and they're in these areas where the the, the mud structures are really the, the building material are so primitive enough yeah. that you have thick walls and cool interiors. So that's good in a hot region, but they are kind of dark. And so the question becomes, how do we, uh, you know, if Jesus is the light of the world. How do we have an environment that's a little brighter than this? And if we're looking and celebrating our, our, our uh, union with God in heaven, these spaces are not heavenly and are not bright. Mm. And so there's a movement in architecture to get, as the spaces get bigger, to figure out ways to make these more heavenly and lighter. And huh. so what you'll start to see is that the walls are, uh, and the ceilings are the focus of most early church architecture. Huh. If we're looking upward and heavenly, the first churches are pretty much like, you know, simple gable roofs and simple spanning roofs, and, and they're not much to look at. But dome architecture evolves pretty quickly within Christendom because that gives us an opportunity to light the ceilings in a heavenly way. And most domes in the early church were painted with heavenly pictures to depict the heavens. And then you have walls of course then how do i support this tall huge expansive ceiling yeah and i've got these walls i mean they've got to be pretty thick right yeah, all working yeah. with masonry but it turns out when they start designing flying buttresses in the gothic uh, period they're able to, to take and create a secondary wall supported by these flying buttresses which are still made out of, made out of masonry but the secondary wall now can be glass because i don't want supporting the roof anymore the buttresses are supporting the roof and the interior walls 
thing, give you these large places for glass. And on those stained, an entire genre of art in stained glass now begins to evolve because we are getting light spaces that yeah. look more. And they're those some of those churches are absolutely heavenly because they have been so they become conservatories for the arts, yes. a place where Christians meet to do to 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 view the art about Jesus and the story of Jesus can be reconstructed from any of these churches and to sing about Jesus. So there's a, this effort to, to, to design churches that are acoustically pleasing as well. And this is the kind of thing that is just further advances. The other two things we talked about, which is art and music. Yeah. These spaces became the place where Christian art and music could thrive. Mm. It's Now it's interesting. There's a move, of course, to be incredibly functional. And in my denomination, the Salvation Army, there's some of that. But yet we're a very visual organization. I see even behind you, I see some police hats, which look a lot like right. a Salvation Army caps, right? And we would be out in public and we we say we would have the cathedral of the open air in the early days yes. of our movement. But there's something interesting, too, about the, a move toward instrumental functioning like that we're just functioning in a way just to get the job done and even like kind of like the uh, stereotypical and i don't mean to mean this in too much of a negative way like big box church right just get a warehouse right. and let's just get people in and out uh, we do we miss something by not having that sort of beauty yeah as a matter of fact you know uh, my wife was raised within a catholic tradition so she would have probably been more like a cultural you know this kind of thing for me i was willing to go into i didn't know what churches were out there but i knew that you know the catholic masses on christmas eve and on easter seemed pretty traditional in these neighborhoods so i'm like okay so that's is that what this is about right but it turns out there is something uh, very special about the tradition of church building that is is very ancient. You know, it starts very early, and the more ancient traditions we have within Christendom um, are still carry the remnants of that architectural progress, right? Yeah. And so you have cathedrals, and so if you've been spent time in any kind of cathedral type setting, yeah. When you get into a big box, and that's where we were when I first heard that preacher say that uh, you know that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. I remember walking in, and my wife said, looking around, going. I don't know. This doesn't seem very holy. <laughs> like if this is a God place, this just seems not like a God place. It's more like a concert place. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I, I just didn't I mean to me at that point right. as a non-believer, I wasn't really yeah, like focused matter. on that. Right. It didn't matter to me, but, but looking back at it, I, I think you get it once you have kind of studied the movement. And it's so funny, even before this is now probably in the late nineties. And when we were in the early eighties, we were touring Europe because Susie was born there and we were going from one church to another castle, to another church, to another castle, right, to another right. church, studying architecture. And every other church, every other building was a church. Yeah. And I never thought really about the influence of Christians. I was just looking at the kind of aesthetics and tracing from Gothic cathedrals to yeah. Baroque to the different forms of architecture that are kind of historically displayed in, in different ways. Yeah. And, and I was just kind of absorbing that, that difference, right? right? That historical difference. I wasn't paying attention to the fact that you realize that all of these were inspired by Jesus and his followers who were trying to do things, trying to make this space reflect the nature of Jesus and the expectations of Christians in heaven. And that's, that's, and you'll get into some of these spaces where you're going, wow, it, it feels otherworldly. Right. And that was really the goal. And they achieved it in many of those spaces. One of my favorite theologians, Wolfhart Poningerberg, and um, he says that he was converted watching the sunset. 
Yeah. And, and there's there's something to that, like the way that we that we sense God and we experience Him mm-hmm. through creation, through art, through literature, through architecture. And again, I'm not trying to. It's it's easy to pick on big churches sometimes, so I'm really not getting there. But but I think your wife had an experience by being at these church, growing up in the Catholic Church, like that. It, it catechized her in a certain way. Now, of course, may, there's weaknesses to the, some of those uh, more liturgical denominations like the uh, that that come sure. about. So, certainly, but there is something to that that spoke to her. And it speaks to your point. Like you realize, I'm a part of something bigger here. Like I'm, a, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of something that is to to the fallout. I'm, I'm connected to something that people believed happened enough that they built this building and that they thought about how it was designed. Yeah, and that's very true. And I, and I think also, if you think about it, um, there is a sense in which many young people, I think, are moving, are, are wanting to be connected to something larger. Right. And, and, and those more ancient traditions are still attractive to people who, who want to see something transcendent in their right, transcendent right. worldview. Like we hold this view of God that transcends time, yet we seem to be in this, you know, very contemporary fleeting kind of structure that seems like it's a, just a moment. Uh, it's just one rock and a stream that seems to be going by us, right? So, so I think there's a sense in which we want to be connected to something transcendent that hasn't changed. That, that like, like, wouldn't you like to know? And this is why when you study music, yeah, you realize that, that until musical notation was invented, the words could be written down to hymns into psalms right but you don't know what that psalm sounded like when david sang it you just know what the words are it turns out that the the melodies were communicated person to person so the tradition how's that song go you just hum it yeah you'd sing it the words you you don't need to memorize that but the song the melody you would transmit orally right until musical notation was invented so so i always kind of think okay we've got a written document here we have the written history of hymns we know what the hymns words were in the first century but we don't know what the music was in the first century. Like, I want to know what the melody was. Right. And so you think, okay, so if I can get into a to some Christian environment that's part of the most ancient traditions, what would those be? They would probably be either Greek Orthodox or they'd be uh, Catholic in right. nature. If you hear the way the music is played there, I'm, you, know, you kind of ask the question. Yeah, is yeah. This, is this close to what the first you know, oral yeah, traditions yeah. were about music, about the melody? Wouldn't you like to know, right? So I think there's a sense in which people are, are interested in that. I'll tell you what I'm interested in. Uh, as we get um, in, into the, current, uh, the modern age, and especially in the social media age, I think everything has changed. And even the way that pastors lead churches has changed. Because we are in a social media environment, yeah. and every pastor has got a platform. Every pastor has got some social media. Right. And at some point, we all shift toward, and we see our, our platform growing on social media, and you're thinking to yourself, really? really? Is this really now about church leadership, or is this about growing your social media platform? Right, right. As sad as that is, that's always a concern that I have, right? Like, where is this all headed? Yeah. And I always think, hey, in the most ancient versions of the church, those... Um, I bet you there's probably not, I could be wrong about this, but I'll bet you there's probably no Greek Orthodox priest who, or leader within the church, who's got a large social media platform and a YouTube channel. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay? Yeah, yeah. But I'm always looking, hey, is there still a version of Christianity out there? Yeah. 
where the leader is not trying to become an influencer yeah. on social media because I think that's corruptive. Yeah. And I worry, it's corrosive. I worry. Yeah. So I'm on, I sometimes can see why people might be uh, attracted to ancient forms, both because they are connected to the past, the transcendent yeah. Yeah. nature of God, and because they hopefully are not as corrupted by the moment we happen to be in culturally. Right. And I, I, I hear that critique myself. Like it is certainly this balance. Like you have something to say, but you know, I, I had um, the last church I served before I came into the academy, there was um, a Coptic Orthodox church right around the corner. And, there you, go. you know, they just, they, they kept it. You really feel like when you walk in and you see what's happening in their worship, man, this is, this is connected to centuries and we are just babies. And yes, we're just that, picking this that, out. That's ex that's a great way to say it. And I think this is true for all of us. Like we all have to deal with this issue of what celebrity is doing to us on social media. I have right. the same problem. Right. Like if you're writing books, you want people to read right. your books. Right. If you're doing a podcast, you want people to find your podcast. So we're all engaged in trying to reach the world using the mechanisms we have in place, which right now are social media. So I get it. And this is now available to us in a way that in the past, only Billy Graham maybe had access to the kind of media by which you could preach the gospel. Now right. every one of us has access to that. That. Right. And so I think it is a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for us going forward. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to close out here. But uh, Jim, like one of the questions I asked everybody is that this podcast is called More to the Story. And we do that kind of like theological tradition wherein emphasizes the doctrine of sanctification, that there's more than just getting saved, that God wants to make us holy. But at the same time, I wonder if there's more to the story of Jim Wallace. Like, is there something that you don't often get to talk about that you're really passionate about? Like maybe you like to, you have a collection of something or you're really into something. So what's what's more to this story of Jim? Well, okay, so I, I, it, there is, but I, I do talk about it once in a while. Um, okay. So I'm not sure it's like a secret. Okay, right? I, but, it's okay if I can't get yeah. the hot take. Yeah, yeah, I don't really, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty locked in on what I do now. Um, and I've always been this way that you don't get, I think probably, you don't start to succeed in any of these things if you aren't completely devoted and locked into them. So if you're working a case, you ask my family, it's like, I'm absorbed. Okay, it's just, it's until that thing is over. Yeah. It's like, I'm just going to be checked out for a while trying to work <laughs> this case. And hopefully it doesn't take too long. So, so that, but the thing I think is, is if, so I think that the, the gospel has the singular power to change the world. The gospel addresses every kind of stupid that's in the world today. So whatever the issue you think needs to be fixed, uh, whatever stupid thing that's irritating you, trust me, the gospel would fix it if, if we all embraced the gospel, how we treat each other, how the world functions. Uh, a lot of stuff would change if all of us would truly embrace the gospel. But outside the gospel, there's one more thing I think that would change culture What's pretty that? fast. It's marriage. We have right. moved away from uh, marriage as a traditional view of marriage. Mm -hmm. We have moved away. So really since probably in America, at least since no fault divorce right. was popularized under Ronald Reagan, who, who always considered to be his biggest mistake mm -hmm. here in the state of California is where it started. But, but I'll tell you that that move away from marriage is killing us as a culture. Yeah. And, and so I, the thing that I spend probably as much time, if I'm not working in Christian apologetics, just making the case for Christianity, Susie and I are working in some form of marriage ministry because we know that um, a return to the, 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 the traditional view um, in which God actually shapes us into something that we are meant to be 
through our spouses mm-hmm. um, is, and then look, and he, even, even Paul would say, hey, not everyone's supposed to be married. But if you're not married to a spouse, that's because you've been called to be married to Jesus in ministry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you're still in some kind of a marriage relationship, it yeah. turns out. So this idea of marriage, and, and this is a place in which we learn how to submit. We learn how to, to be humble, to be, really learn humility. Yeah. We learn the, the nature that to, to learn that perfect balance between God's justice and God's mercy. That that's the kind of stuff that works. It, it can a marriage can if if you do it right, a marriage can actually do that for you. Yeah. Can help. To deal, this is why God says in Ephesians, right, that we are to present our brides to like Christ is presenting the church to God. Amen. Yeah. Like the the, the the marriage environment is a place in which we can help each other grow in the faith. Yes. So that we can pre- present each other holy to a holy God. Amen. And I think that's what I think is is probably the other aspect of our work that you know, I don't I don't have a I'm not a marriage counselor. And so I'm a detective. So I stay in my lane, right? I talk about the things that I can help you assess the evidence in places maybe where you weren't. But I don't have a degree in marriage counseling. Right. Because but it turns out, it yeah, but uh, Susan and I have been together for 42 years. And I'll tell you that if there's a if there's one thing that we value uh, after the gospel, it's marriage. Yeah, beautiful. Well, that's been an emphasis on our podcast. I'm sorry, but maybe have you back some time to talk about that. I just, we just had an interview with Katie Faust at the organization, Them Before Us, you know, emphasizing like the way to think about family values is the importance of marriage between a man and woman, creating children. Right. Um, we had other other folks on too. And in, in my tradition, every member of the Salvation Army Church says that they will uphold the sanctity of marriage and family life. And when we do that, I think we'll see the benefit in other areas as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even, if you, even if you were not a, a religious person, you said, I'm not interested yes, in God. Yeah. Okay, fine. If all I can do is get you toward that step of being interested in marriage. Yeah. Right. I say it a lot. I always say it. I love marriage even more than I love my wife. Wow. Now that should benefit her, right? Because yeah. I want the kind of marriage that's crazy. That's great. That's fantastic. The people write books about that's the kind of marriage I want. And that's, if you're going to do that, then you're going to have to love your wife in a way that is, produces that. But, um, but that transcendent value, if I don't have God, if before I ever knew God is my transcendent goal, it was marriage. So it's my transcendent goal. Awesome. So, so that's something I think that can change the world. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. And again, person of interest is his book. We'll have information about him and Cold Case Christianity in the show notes. Jim, thanks so much. Jay Warner Wallace is his uh, name, pen name, so you can find him and all the, all the things he's done. Thank you so much for coming to the Mortar Story podcast. It means a lot to me, and we really appreciate the ministry God's given you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. God bless you.